Cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. We're talking today to Michael Daniel, president and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Prior to that, he was special assistant to President Obama and cybersecurity coordinator at the National Security Council. He came to that position with a long experience from his time at the Office of Management and Budget. So thanks for doing this. Sure, happy to. How did you get into cyber? What what put you in this field? Sure. So it's one of those kind of funny stories. You know, I was working as the branch chief for intelligence programs in the Office of Management and Budget in the mid-2000s. And at that time, the uh, U.S. intelligence community started spending tremendous amounts of money on this thing called cyber. And at the time, nobody knew really understood what in the world we were spending all this money on. So the director of OMB at the time actually uh, looked looked at me and another guy in the in, in the Homeland branch and said, "You two, go get smart on this cyber thing." Um, <laughs> And sort of started me down this path of really getting involved with cybersecurity. And I just got more and more fascinated by the issue and started spending more and more of my, my time on it. Eventually, I started running the cybersecurity crosscut. Um, I was teaching myself all sorts of things about the field and really, you know, got into it. What's the crosscut? So we decided to actually look at, uh, yeah, that's a term of art inside OMB. It's when you're trying to look at funding for a type of activity that's actually spread across multiple departments and agencies. And there is probably no issue that cuts across more agencies than cybersecurity, because you can find little bits of it sort of everywhere. And so I really, you know, I got heavily involved with the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative at the end of the Bush administration. I hmm. uh, continued really getting into the issue in the Obama administration. And uh, mm-hmm. then eventually, um, the White House asked me to come over and be President Obama's cybersecurity advisor. And so in June of 2012, I jumped into that role and then spent four and a half years in that position. So that that's really uh, how I got in, into this field. On that line, there's been some calls yet again for centralizing cybersecurity in a, a new agency. And of course, I always, when I hear that, I immediately think of the drug czar who's now, you know, over on Montana Avenue somewhere in Southeast. Right. Uh, And the other side of that, of course, is you were in some ways the centralizing figure, but in the NSC, in the White House. What do you think about centralization? I think there is a need for a strong lead in the executive office of the president uh, in the White House for uh, a strong lead on cybersecurity simply because there are a few issues like this that cut across so many different agencies, because you can answer the question in so many different ways. 
right? I mean, is cybersecurity a network defense issue? Yes. Is it an economic issue? Yes. Is it a national security issue? Yes. Is it an international affairs issue? Yes. It's a technology development issue? Yes. I mean, it's all of those things. And no one agency is ever going to have the sole lead for all things cyber. And that means that inevitably in the federal bureaucracy, you're dealing with multiple departments and agencies, and you're not going to be able to put one agency in charge of another because you're just going to have to, that just leads to the, you know, you're not the boss of me problems that are prevalent in the in the federal bureaucracy. So I do think that there is a need for a strong position there. And I do think that position needs to have insight into both what the defenders are doing and what the operators are doing with our offensive programs, because the two are are intimately interconnected. Now, I also think that it needs to have strong access to the national security system. And, you know, like like you said, I am I am leery of constructing something that's that's like the drugs are. I do think that a model that's more like that's closer to like USTR, the the trade representative or some of those other functions would actually probably be a better model because those are more central to what the what administrations do. Would you create a, a USTR like thing uh, over, you know, across the street and a standalone uh, in some ways? It's part of the White House, sure, but it's it's also a bit separate from it. Would you go that far? Or would you stick with the the way you did it? Did you have enough people? I mean. What are the advantages? You know, one advantage of being on the NSC is that the NSC can run process, right? And there are very few things like it in most other governments and even within the U.S. government. Its ability to uh, manage process and for all its faults and move that process along is just unparalleled. Mm -hmm. And so I think you would want access to that, that system. But I do think that having some some distance um, and some sort of structure there to enable the uh, that kind of position to you know help do some of the international engagement that needs to occur that to do some of the liaison work also with you know state and local governments as well that's really important and you probably need to have a little bit more engagement with industry and the outside world than is common on the NSC that was always a, a tough issue for us to, to work through because the NSC is really designed to be an internal facing organization. And in many ways, you you know, cybersecurity being such a an issue that affects the private sector where so much of the expertise is in the private sector, you also need to have that ability to interact with the private sector. So I have actually come around, Jim, to the idea that some sort of position like that is probably the right way to go. Um it, it took me a while to get there because I'm, you know, like I said, spent a long time at OMB and I have that natural uh, baked in Office of Management and Budget skepticism about new agencies or new positions. So that's where I'm, I'm starting to land. Uh, but again, I think you'd have to construct it right or otherwise it would be an exercise in just bureaucracy growth and that wouldn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. That might be a good lead into the next question, which is, what do you think the big issues are now for cybersecurity? I mean, when you left, we had a pretty well-constructed machine, uh, at least for coordinating in the federal government, coordinating among some really big agencies. We had some good initiatives, you know, whether it was the NIST framework or whether it was the executive orders on critical infrastructure. Um, what do you think the issues are now? Well, I think that you're starting to see some trends that are beginning to play out that are particularly challenging, 
right? One of which is that cyberspace itself continues to get bigger. It's one of the only domains that I know of where there's more of it on a daily basis, right? I mean, yes, I know the Chinese are sort of creating some islands in the South China Sea, but, you know, and the Emiratis, you know, occasionally do that in the Gulf. But I mean, generally speaking, there's not more land, right? Yeah. You know, there's not more sea, but on a daily basis, there's more cyberspace, and it's getting more more complex, right? Because now, instead of just sort of wired desktops and wired laptops, you're talking about mobile devices, cars, phones, you know, Alexas, you know, anything you can think of, we're hooking it up. And that's happening like at just an enormous speed. The other thing is yeah. that all of the interconnections now, this leads to the next point, which is it's getting so complex that we don't really understand our risk. You know, you can see this in things like the NotPetya outbreak, right? Which all of a sudden whacks these organizations that sort of on the surface, it's like, how the heck are they connected to Ukraine? And it's because of all the deep interconnections that are sort of complex and chaotic in the mathematical senses of those words that, you know, we really can't even begin to understand and manage our risk using sort of traditional risk management tools because of the interdependent variables. So um, what would you do about that? I mean, would you, it's hard to even articulate it sometimes. What would you think about doing? I mean, the, I would agree, I maybe don't agree, but I would say that the old approach to cybersecurity, the one we had even 10 years ago, doesn't really fit this new map anymore. So what would you do? Well, I think one of the things that you really have to think about is how do you both layer the defenses and also think about it in terms of the incentive structure? Because we clearly still don't have the incentive structure organized properly to get people to make the right degree of investment in cybersecurity. And so first, I would do uh, some basic level research on sort of how these systems interconnect and how they interact and how can we do some modeling to actually look for places where there might be unexpected connections so that we begin to have an idea of how to model our risk more effectively. And then you start to look at, okay, where, do, where can we harness the market forces and line up the incentives correctly to get people to make the level of investment that they should be making? And then are there some levels of investment that we want to go beyond that, that the government should call for? Because you've got a public good aspect of certain parts of cybersecurity. Some of it's a private good. No one wants to be hacked, right? But there are some of it where we would want certain organizations, certain functions to invest even more in cybersecurity than they are. Um, and then you should couple this, I think, with uh, a much more integrated approach between the government and the private sector to start looking at how do we collaborate between the effective parts of the ecosystem, both government, meaning law enforcement and intelligence and military uh, organizations and private sector organizations that have broad reach. So your enormous platform providers, your uh, telecommunication companies, your really big cybersecurity companies. And how do we actually then use a sort of shared view and shared campaign planning to actually strategically disrupt what our adversaries are doing? If we can start to do those things, that's how we actually start to 
alter the the digital ecosystem to favor the defender more and not not favor the the attacker so much. How well do you think the private sector is doing? I mean, without putting you too much on the spot, you know, looking back now, you've you've been out for a few years. When you look at critical infrastructure, when you look at the digital economy real large, are we better off? Are we worse off? Are we keeping ahead or at least even with the trends? How would you how would you rate things? I would say that it depends on what part of the private sector you're talking about. And I think that it's not so much divided up between the critical infrastructure verticals, but it's more about size of organization. And I would say that the larger organizations have come further. So whether you're talking about the big banks or the large healthcare firms or the large energy companies, they've all made tremendous investments over the last few years and um, and have come further. If you look at like the cybersecurity industry itself with setting up things like the Cyber Threat Alliance, where I am now, um, but also other initiatives that have gone on. Um, the cybersecurity community has started to evolve as well. Um, but I think that there's still a long way to, to go. And in particular, where I see a lot of the divide now is we talk a lot about the public-private partnership, but good grief, I'm, you know, nobody actually knows what that term means. And it's easy to say, and it's really hard to sort of make, make operational and some of that is, yeah, there's a whole variety of reasons why that's in, uh, that's true and also totally legitimate, um, that it's hard. Um, but it is, I, to me, that's where the real policy work has got to happen over the next few years is how do you actually set up the right processes, the right structures to enable the public sector and the private sector to actually work together to have a strategic impact? And how do you do that in a way that uh, that deals with the c- concerns about showing favoritism to particular companies or companies being concerned that they're going to be perceived as arms of the U.S. government? Um, that is one of the core problems we actually have to tackle. Where does uh, regulation fall in this? Does it help or is it a hindrance? I mean, it, it varies from sector, but when you sure. talk about it broadly. I mean, I think regulation actually has a place. Um I think, again, it can be really, you know, as with anything, you can do it stupidly in a way that actually makes you worse off. You know, if you implement regulations in sort of a knee-jerk fashion or uh, without actually thinking through how you're going to deal with some of the second and third order effects, then you can end up actually having a negative impact on your security. On the other hand, I think if you look at requirements to, for example, requirements that certain financial institutions sort of achieve a certain level, uh, a certain standard of care, right? You can use regulation smartly to help shape the market. And so I think regulation has a place in here, but it's it's not the first place I would go to. It's more after you've done the market analysis, where do you actually need to still move the needle? Where do you still need to shape behavior? And how do you write a regulation in a way that is as technology agnostic as possible to allow for the evolution of, of technology. This is a little wonky, but have you looked at this uh, DOD cybersecurity maturity model 
So I, I know about it. I actually, I haven't dug into it as deeply as I would like to, but I think it actually there, that's another good example of the government trying to use its purchasing power to say, hey, if you want to be part of this market, we're going to actually provide some customer demand for increased security. To me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think it's actually a good thing. That leads, I think, to the final question, which is, how well do you think this administration is doing? You've seen it now in three administrations. It's, it's really only been around for a little more than three administrations. But how would you, well would you say they're doing on cybersecurity? So, you know, interestingly, I would say that this administration is probably doing better in cybersecurity than I would rate it in a lot of other policy areas. But there's some notable problems. On the plus side, I would say that uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, particularly the, the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, has really made some strides. I mean, first of all, just turning that from a headquarters element into a full-fledged agency, getting that done and across the, the finish line was a, was a really big deal, and that will pay some long-term dividends. Chris Krebs, as the director over there, has really done some great work, and I really think that the way that DHS has worked with particularly state and local governments on election security and other issues like that has been really great. I think in other areas, though, I think particularly in sort of the interagency coordination area, you can you don't get the sense that there is as strong a tie between what all the agencies are doing. I mean, the cybersecurity strategy that the administration put out is is actually quite solid, but you, you don't get the sense that like there's this huge drive to really make progress. I think that our international standing, of course, has been so hampered by other sort of non-cyber issues, if you will, in all of our relationships that we've we've struggled to continue making you know good progress on the international side. So it's kind of mixed results, is what I would say. Well, tell us a little bit about the Cyber Threat Alliance. Uh, I love the acronym CTA, but uh, what what are you guys up to? And you're, you're sort of at the nexus of public-private partnership in some ways. What What's different about this in your government job? What the Cyber Threat Alliance really does is we enable cybersecurity companies, platform providers, telecommunication companies, those that are providing cybersecurity services to others. We enable those kinds of entities to get together and actually share threat intelligence, both in an automated fashion and in a human-to-human fashion, and to do it at speed, at scale. And that's really important. And so right now we have 26 members from eight different countries uh, that are part of the alliance. And we're really trying to grow the alliance. And we're always looking for how we can actually both benefit the ecosystem as a whole, but also you know, make our member companies more effective at providing cybersecurity products and services so that they're better at their uh, mission. At the same time, yes, we actually also work with governments, not just the U.S. government, but many responsible governments around the world. And, you know, I would say that what, what CTA is really about is sort of how do you advance the practice of threat intelligence sharing? Because it turns out there's a reason why we talked about it for so long instead of doing it is because it turns out doing it is actually really hard. And, you know, so we're about how do you advance the state of the practice in actually doing threat intelligence sharing in a way that both benefits our members, but benefits uh, society and the ecosystem, too. 
And then how do we take, you know, my goal for CTA is then how do we take that shared threat intelligence that we have and start to do that operational collaboration that I was talking about earlier with governments? Like, how do we actually start to impose some strategic costs on our adversaries that, you know, will knock an, you know, an adversary group offline for three or four months at a time? How do we start having an impact and lowering the amount of cybercrime that's occurring, the amount of ransomware, the amount of phishing that's going on in the ecosystem in a way that citizens and corporations and others could actually notice. Those are the kinds of things that we're trying to work on. And it's a really interesting problem set. And I would say that there are many similarities between trying to get uh, disparate agencies to work together in the federal government and trying to get uh, disparate companies to work together in this environment. We've come pretty much to the end of our time. We've got a couple of minutes left. So What do you think we should talk about? What did I miss? One thing I would want to hit on is that one of the one of the issues that has struck me is really in how much our dependence on technology and the Internet have really changed even over the last 15 years, um, but certainly over the last 20. And this pandemic response that we're going through right now of everybody working from home and can, you know, really sort of highlights this. But You know, things that would have been mildly annoying when I started in the government in the mid-1990s are now sort of operationally catastrophic, right? Mm -hmm. The, you know, in the mid-1990s, if the network went down, we just did something else for the day, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we we worked on our non-networked computers. We called people on the phone. We actually held meetings in person, you know. Now, if the network went down, you know, we'd be we'd be out of luck. And so I think that that profound digital dependence and and the United States is not unique in that. We may be pretty far along, but there are other countries that are right there with us and many other countries that are catching up. And understanding that digital dependence goes along with understanding that risk that I was talking about earlier. And it's something that we really need to factor into how we're thinking about our risk management and what constitutes critical. Yeah, when you look at us developing countries, no network, no banks. So there are in some ways, they are in some ways as vulnerable as we are and really no ports or airports either. So it has been 25 years. So what do you think the next 25 years hold? That's a ridiculous (laughs) question. You can cut it down to five if you want. Well, I certainly think that if we want to continue the technology revolution, if we want to continue garnering the benefits that come from a connected world, we are going to have to drive the level of malicious cyber activity down to a level that we can manage. I sort of liken it to the the issues that we had at the beginning of the 20th century with sort of threats to the financial system from bank robberies and things like that, that we had to get that down to a manageable level in order for the financial system to actually be stable enough in the long term to to really take off. And I think here, again, if we want the promise of all the what the digital revolutions can bring, we'll never get rid of cybercrime entirely, but we have to get it down to a level that is manageable for societies over the long term and does not pose existential threats to, you know, our democracy and our economy and sort of our culture and way of life. How much do you think we're going to need to work with other countries to do that? It sounds like a dumb question, but there's at least three countries I can think of, maybe four, that really aren't really interested in working with us. So what do you do in a world that is bifurcated or split into different camps? How do you how do you move towards that goal? 
Well, I think that, you know, even there, even when you have countries that are uh, at odds with us on many other issues, you can still look for areas of commonality. I think this is a profoundly international issue. There was not an issue that I worked on in the White House that did not have some international ramification to it. I mean, even our power grid is shared with the Canadians. So the international aspects are just completely inescapable. Even in those environments when you've got countries that are, you know, you don't even have to go to the ones that are sort of our adversaries in many ways. You could go to the ones that are really prickly to deal with on, you know, on occasion. And there's no rocket science there. It's, it's good old diplomacy. How do you find those areas of shared interest where even though in broad terms there's more difficult relations, you can still find places to uh, make agreements and find common interest where or at least where the goals will line up enough to make some progress? It is slow, hard work, but I think that's what you have to do. Michael, thank you for doing this. It was great. You're quite welcome. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Thank you.